Nationally, there are over 1.97 million dreamers. Texas is home to 213,000 dreamers, including 110,000 DACA recipients. Texas dreamers have contributed $412.8 million in state and local taxes and another $441.1 million in federal taxes. It's plain to see that DREAMers and DACA recipients have a vital role and are major contributors in our U.S. and Texas economy. On September 5th of 2017, President Trump ordered an end to DACA, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals program. In January of 2021, President Biden issued an executive order to direct federal agencies to preserve and fortify DACA. However, in July of 2021, a federal judge in Texas ruled that DACA is illegal and said that the Biden administration could not approve any new applications. The next step for this issue is the United States Supreme Court. With a conservative court in place, the chances are very, very slim that DACA will be approved and the program being reinstated. In this episode, we talk to three DACA recipients. They will share with us their thoughts and their stories and give us their perspective and what it's like to possibly be deported from the only country they know. Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by Tamak, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. Tamak is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. And welcome to another episode of the Latino Business Report. Today, we have a full slate of people to talk to. There's actually three guests on the show. Let me start off with the first one. My longtime friend, uh, Juan Carlos Serna. Juan Carlos, how are you doing today, sir? Good evening, JR. I'm doing very well. Thank you for having us on your show. No, no, no. Thank you for being here. Now, Juan Carlos, to, for in a way of introduction, I mean, we've known each other for what, three or four years now? Three years and going strong, JR. Three years going, and I have totally enjoyed our relationship. Juan Carlos, give us, um, you are the deputy, deputy campaign director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. What is that? What do, what do you guys do? That's right, JR. ABIC, for short, is a coalition that is bipartisan, located in 17 states, including Texas, Idaho, North and South Carolina, Arizona, New York, California, among others, that has 1,200 CEOs that advocate for common sense immigration solutions. Certain advocacy group for immigration. Correct. And we are led nationally by business leaders like Woody Hunt in Texas, the senior chairman of Hunt Companies, John Rowe, the former chairman of Exelon Corporation, one of the largest electricity utility companies in the world, and also some of the biggest Republican donors like Mike Fernandez, the chairman of MBF Healthcare Partners. And I can only assume right now one of the top issues you guys are dealing with is DACA and the fact that the clock is ticking and decisions are going to be made by the Supreme Court. That's right, JR. ABIC got started principally because of DACA. DACA was ending in 2017 because President Trump at the time decided that DACA was illegal, executive overreach and decided to end the program, which meant that DACA was going to end and Congress needed to find 
a permanent solution. Right now, DACA is in the courts. It's being litigated. There are lawsuits against DACA by states like Texas that are arguing that DACA is a drain on Texas's resources and taxpayers' money. And we're arguing that DACA actually is a net benefit to our economy, especially because we're dealing with 204,000 dreamers in the state of Texas that are contributing to our communities and our economy and are a vital part of our country. Okay. God, you said in the program. Well, what started the program or how long has the program been in existence? DACA was actually first initiated by undocumented students back before 2010. Students throughout the country were growing up in the United States. They were going to school. Many were going to college without authorization, not knowing if they were going to be able to use their education and put it to use. But they didn't want to give up on their dreams. So a a dreamer in 2001 named Teresa Wong actually contacted her senator, Dick Durbin, from Illinois and said, hey, this is my situation I need help to become a citizen. So Senator Durbin was very inspired by her and decided to create the DREAM Act and name Teresa a dreamer or somebody who is in the pursuit of the American dream and a path to citizenship. So that's how we got started. And that's how DACA was first initiated because dreamers asked President Obama in 2010 and 2011 to do something about our issue. So because Congress failed to pass immigration reform, President Obama was forced to create the DACA program, which is a temporary measure that protects us from deportation. By executive order. Exactly. Allows us to work for two years and uh, gives us the ability to to at least uh, have a shot at the American dream. When you say gives us a shot, so one godless, you're a dreamer yourself, correct? That's right, Jerry. I'm a dreamer. Where where did you where are you from and, and how did you come to this country? I came to the U.S. with my family from San Luis Potosí, Mexico. It's it's right south of Monterrey, north of Mexico City. And I came when I was seven years old because my parents wanted a better future for us. My Both my parents are actually now legal permanent residents. Uh, up to two months ago, they actually got their green cards through my youngest brother, who is a U.S. citizen. Uh, my dad's an electrician, and my mother is a factory worker And thanks to them, they brought me to this country. They gave me the chance to study here. I was able to get a full scholarship to go to Yale University. I was still undocumented, but I didn't want to give up on my dreams of having an education or career uh, because I was hopeful that Congress and the president would do something about our situation. And it wasn't until 2012 when DACA was created that I was finally able to pursue my dreams of uh, becoming a kindergarten teacher right after I graduated from Yale. Okay, you said Yale, right? That's right. I went to Yale. Not bad. Not bad. Now, as a dreamer, I mean, you went to Yale. You're here. You're a DACA recipient. I mean, you had to earn your way into Yale. I mean, you didn't have any affirmative action programs or anything like that. I mean, you had to have the grades, the discipline, and the skills and apply like everybody else. And in a competitive market, you got into Yale and graduated from there. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. I definitely had to work my ass off and do the very best I could uh, become a salutatorian of my high school and in the process, uh, get accepted by UT and uh, decide, hey, because Texas uh, doesn't have as friendly in-state tuition policies or uh, financial aid, why not go to a private school like Yale and get a full ride? 
Wow. Well, Juan Carlos, I know that you have two other guests that we're going to have on the podcast today. And since you invited them, I'll give you the pleasure of introducing them. Thank you so much, JR. I'm pleased to introduce two remarkable young men who have inspired me through their work and uh, their ability to persevere through uh, tough times in the immigration world. Uh, Alberto Garcia, he's an entrepreneur and the owner of Uniformity, and Jesus Contreras, who is a paramedic from Houston, both uh, very intelligent uh, young men who are just pursuing the American dream. And we're so honored uh, to have them on your show and to have them share a little bit about their stories. Absolutely. Jesus, Alberto, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And um, Alberto, let's start with you. I mean, you are a, I think Juan Carlos, being a little modest there, you are actually kind of a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you've been in business, your family's been in business, you own a business. Uh, tell us about your business and how you came came to the U.S. and where you're from. Okay. So I'll just start off real quick on how I came to the U.S. So when I was six years old, uh, uh, my mother, she's, she's a single mother. She brought me and my siblings over. Uh, we're from Zacatecas, and she brought us over. And we we had super humble beginnings. I mean, we were living in an apartment with, like, eight other people, eight other guys, and it was just, like, us four uh, in, in, a single, in a single room. So when she signed me up for right, uh, let's for let's back up. How many how many people in a single room? It was yeah, there was eight people in, in a two bedroom apartment, and we had one of the rooms. Wow. It was my brother, my younger brother, my older sister, my mom, and and uh, myself, and in a single room. And and that's how we kind of grew up. That's how I kind of grew up in elementary school. Kind of like you know, just staying in one room, all of us. Because uh, like, again, she's a single mother coming to a sure, whole new sure. a whole new country. She doesn't know the language. She doesn't know anybody. So we reached out to some. She knew some friends out here, so we're staying with them. Uh, but that's how we start. I was in in elementary school, so this is how I started. Why I started Uniformity. So when I first registered to uh, and Uniformity, to, your business right now. Uniformity is my business right now. Okay. This is kind of how the idea got planted. So when I first signed up to run an academy, it was a elementary school. My principal, uh, I didn't have, we didn't have money for, for like uniforms. So my principal, what he did, he like took me to Sears and he was like, okay, grab everything you need. Um, and you know, pick out your uniforms for school. Cause it was a, a very strict school. And I think it was like a academy. So we had to wear uniforms. So from there, um, you know, I, I grew up with that in the back of my mind. And, um, through my whole life, I was playing, I played soccer. So with soccer, I was, I was always like a, a captain. So I was always really motivated and driven because I was a man of, of my, my family, like the man of the house. So I was like, all right, I have to do something with my life. I can't just, you know, not have this opportunity and not take advantage of it. So, um, I grew up or in high school. I had, I was in national honor society. I was always doing good in school. Um, and then, I got a, and uh, I went to to UNT, so I got a full ride to UNT. I wanted to go to SMU, but they didn't give me a full ride. But I went to UNT, and it was awesome. I had uh, I graduated with a, a degree in commercial real estate, and uh, I, throughout college I was working throughout high school, my sophomore year of high school, and through college I was working with our our other business, which is a scale agency, and that's a staffing business. So I grew up. Uh, serving, uh, bartending, being a houseman for like when you do housekeeping, you have a houseman, he picks up the linens and all that. 
So I grew up working in that uh, through college and, and, uh, and high school. And after I graduated college, uh, I, have, I have also a mentor. His name is Jorge Valdor. He kind of, he was like, hey, I was ready to get a job in, in the corporate world. Um, but he was like, hey, you should, you know, you should start your own business. And in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I always did want to be, you know, my, my, cause the family, Askel is a family business. So that's like all of our mm-hmm. business. I was like, I, I do want to start my own business. And so I came up with, uh, I went to go visit a couple of uniform stores and I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I formed my business plan. And then, uh, yeah, 20, 29, May 2019, three years ago, uh, well, it just happened the three year anniversary. I started it and then, yeah, I just been, that's what I've been doing ever since then. And yeah, you know, how old were you? How old, studio. how old were you when you started your first business or your own business? My own business? I was 23. Yeah, I was 23. 23. Mm-hmm. All right. How's the I business just going? Gra- it's good. Yeah. Like the first uh, <laughs> freaking, I would say the first two years, it was so hard. I didn't know. Like, I, I honestly, if anybody wants to start a business, I kind of started off doing a whole bunch of things that I shouldn't have. But if you want to start a business, I would definitely like, uh, you know, sit down with yourself and really go over your business plan and what you actually need and don't go do things, you know, don't go buy stuff and just do all these random things. Cause, but you got to learn from your mistakes. So sure. I mean, it was worth it, but first two years were rough. (laughs) I know what you mean. I started my first business at 26 and yes, we make a lot of mistakes. (laughs) So good. Um, our next guest, we have um, Jesus. Jesus, I did a little background on you, and I saw your smiling face in uh, People Magazine, People in Espanol. You, you're kind of famous there. You're a, you're a paramedic, I understand? <laughs> I guess so. Not not really. Not anymore. I try to keep my head low and just work. But um, JR, thank you're you n- You're not a paramedic me. anymore? You're not famous anymore? Not famous. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, before, before we get into it, I mean, just... Tell me a little bit about that note that those 15 minutes of fame that you had and, and how that came about. Yeah, JR. Um, so my name is Jesus Contreras. You know, I, I've been a paramedic since 2015, I believe, 2015, 2016. Well, um, in my line of work, you know, we deal with emergencies and we deal with a lot of 911 calls. Well, here in Houston, we were unfortunate to have Hurricane Harvey hit us. And it hit us pretty bad to the point where um, all our first responders, like myself, were working a a whole week nonstop. You know, I I think I worked seven days uh, in total. And so there was national media uh, from all across the, the, or international media from all across the world here in Houston. And they were doing reporting on, you know, the flooding and the damage. And I was working and then once those seven days ended, I went to volunteer at my church and help with their first aid um, that they had out there. And then that night I got home. I hadn't had a chance to turn on the TV the entire week. And I turn on the TV and it's President Trump at the time announcing that he's rescinding DACA. Wow. So um, I had a connection with a friend who knew that I was a DACA recipient, who knew that I was a first responder. Um, and she let him know, hey, we have a DACA recipient, you know. While they're saying that we're criminals, that we're just mooching off uh, the rest of the country, I have a friend who's actually a paramedic on the front lines helping people, you know, who are stuck in the water, you know, have medical emergencies during this tough time. You were saving lives. Yeah. Literally, at that time, it was just nonstop work, you know, dedicated to my community, 
my state, you know, this country, the city, and I was all in. And so turning that TV on and seeing all that was heartbreaking. And I knew at that point that I just had, I just had to say something about it. I just had to share my story and tell people that, look, no, I'm actually doing something productive. I'm actually helping my community. I'm actually giving back. We're actually valuable assets. And, and I think that's where my 15 minutes of fame came was, you know, people saw that I was doing some sort of, you know, community work and that all I wanted to do was help people. And um, the president at the time was threatening that, that ability and, and all that work that I'd put in just to be where I was. And so, you know, I went on to be on People Magazine, like you were saying, mm-hmm. the Houston Chronicle, MSNBC, NBC, Fox, CNN, all the major news networks. Um, and it was it was a great time to get to share my story. And now I get to help other people share their stories. Well, it sounds like you're getting more cover- coverage than Trump at the time. Yeah? Uh, I was getting a lot of coverage. <laughs> it was boy, it was so stressful. So is, where, where are you from and, and what age did you come to this country? Yeah. So um, I'm from Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, Mexico. I was uh, born in 93. Uh, my mom and dad um, raised me there up until the age of six. Um, my mom decided it was best for her and I to uh, flee the country. My dad was involved in some stuff that um, that wasn't the best for us. And the city and the border town were in a time of war and, and, and cartels and drug smuggling and, and violence. And so she, she thought that she could provide a better future for me here in, in the States. And we had family. We have family in Houston. So we took a Greyhound bus in the middle of the night and came to Houston. And she just told me, we're going to stay here for the rest of our life. And this is where you're going to, you know, this is where you're going to live. And this is where you're going to go to school. And from there on, you know, it's just been here in the state, just working hard. Wow. So amazing stories. Well, we're very fortunate. And once again, thank you. I got three of you, uh, all, uh, all, all, all DACA, all very successful, accomplished, educated, and definitely contributing to this society much more than some, some other folks. But let me just kind of get this. And, and one God, listen, in a little while, we're going to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of, of what's going on in Congress and what's going on with this. But can I get just a, uh, from each of you just a little a little idea of what it was like growing up as undocumented until you became a dreamer and just that, that angst, that fear, that anxiety. I mean, wh- what did it feel like knowing that any time that you or any members of your family could possibly be deported or you come home from school one day and, you know, Migra was there and everybody was gone? When it was, was full of anxiety, full of anxiety, Jr. I can tell you one story of when I was in high school, I was part of the academic decathlon team and I, I was a team captain. I helped the team win the district championship. And we were going to El Paso, Texas for the state championship. But it turns out that two of my teammates were undocumented. And we knew that if we went to El Paso, that we would be asked about our immigration status at the checkpoints right outside the city. So we went to our teacher and said, hey, we can't go to El Paso, Texas because we're going to get deported. We're undocumented. So we unfortunately had to make the tough choice of dropping out of the state finals because a third of our team didn't have authorization. So that just gives you an idea of the opportunities we had to give up because we were undocumented. And I remember the first thing that I did actually when I was accepted to Yale was go to the Mexican consulate, take a 
day off of school to go get my Mexican passport because once you turn 18, you can no longer use your student ID from high school to fly on an airplane. So you literally have to go get a passport from your country of origin so you can even get to where you want to go. And that is the reason why DACA truly made a change in my life because it allowed me to get a driver's license so that I could use it to travel on an airplane to college. It allowed me to get my first legal job. Before then, I was working from dawn to dusk with my father in the electricity business, trying to wire houses and basically selling copper wire door to door in many cases. So DACA allowed me to actually pursue a different career path, uh, different from my dad, whom I love. I love the work he does and it provided for us. But uh, growing up, I always loved uh, going to school and I always dreamed about potentially teaching, which I ended up doing as a kindergarten teacher. Wow. Alberto, what what uh, story do you have growing up as a child and recognizing uh, just the possibility that any time something can happen or you or your family members could be deported? For me, it was the same sort of experience. Like it's always having that anxiety that uh, you could or like hearing your friends, especially from school, they're like, oh, we're going to we're going to deport you or. You can get deported, and and then and then they're just you, mean kid, in school, aren't they, man? They're just yeah, as a mean. kid, you just realize, and you're like, dang, they're kind of right. They can't, we can't just like get deported <laughs> at the time. So I always, it, it was kind of like something you grow up with, and then you hear la migra all the time, especially from friends that are just trying to like, you know, be mean. And then uh, later on, when you get older, well, like in high school, uh, you see your friends getting driver's license. You see them driving. Uh, it's not that we couldn't drive, but it's just like, dang, okay, so, like, you need driver's license. You need to get insurance. You need to get all this stuff, but you need to have an ID to get all these things. Or even, t- like, they were getting jobs, right, in high school. And I was like, right. what the heck? That's so, like, I, I was like, that's crazy. Like, I, we're the same people. Like, they, I can relate to them, but, like, this little piece of paper or whatever, like, um, so you didn't have that documentation, so you yeah, couldn't, and I couldn't get the, the driver's license and get a summer job and do things your friends were doing. Right, and now people were signing up. So it was my junior year of high school. They were signing up for colleges, right, and everybody was signing up. And I didn't get DACA till like, after uh, after I graduated, which is, yeah, 2013. Um, and I was like, man, I was like, man, well, this is not going to – I'm going to just probably get a job or figure this out, do something. Uh, it's just not going to be for me, you know, education, uh, just because I wasn't going to pay that much or whatever. But for me, then when I got DACA, I was able to, okay, get into college, get a job, uh, work, you know, work for, to pay my, you know, to pay whatever I had to in college. So for me, it opened up so many doors, like even flying, um, it opened up doors to fly that I, we would always drive everywhere. Everywhere we traveled, mm-hmm. we would always drive. Because we were too scared to drive because we didn't know if we were going to deport, we we're going to get deported or not. And obviously, we didn't want to risk that. Um, right. So just opening like simple things that uh, probably like an uh, American just takes for granted. To me, it was like, wow, like <laughs> I can't do all these things. And it's just it's super crazy. But I mean, that's just how it is or it was. So once you got your 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 DACA status, a whole new world of opportunities opened up for you. Man, <laughs> I'm still waiting for more opportunities to open. Like, I still want more, right? Once you get a little taste, you're like, I want more. But no, it. I did. It opened a lot of doors. Um, and, I mean, it was definitely a disadvantage. Yeah. 
But I mean, you're very fortunate instead of working for somebody else, you're working for yourself. I mean, you got that entrepreneurial spirit and you're, you took a chance, you take a chance on yourself and building, building your own business. And see, Dios quiere, this DACA thing will be resolved and you can continue to grow your business and, and, and live here with, with your, your family. Uh, Jesus, um, any, any experiences that you have when, when you were a child? Yeah, JR, uh, being undocumented was tough. Like it is for a lot of us. And, and I can't say my story is unique. You know, I think we all share similar stories. You know, my mom and I got here and, she went straight to work. The only work that she could get was just cleaning jobs. And so there I was going with her to dealerships at nighttime while she cleaned. And I would just hang around, lick the cars and stuff like that. And so um, that being young was just eye-opening, you know, knowing that we were undocumented, that this is as far as we could take it. This is as much as we could do. And and watching my mom not complain was one of the best things I ever learned because I learned not to complain when I was faced with some tough situations. Uh, like Juan Carlos uh, was saying earlier, I ran into a similar situation in high school. I was part of um, an EMT basic program that my high school offered. I had finished all my credits to graduate it, so I joined this program. And the deal with the program is if you take the class at the end of the semester or the year, you can take your state exam if you pass you know, your national registry registry exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, crappy part about that was that you needed to take a, the state exam, you needed a driver's license or a social. And I didn't have either one of those. So even though I was one of only, the class was 36 students, only six of us passed. I was one of those six and I couldn't test. You know, wow. I couldn't take them to get my EMT basic license. And furthermore, you know, cause I, I wanted to pursue paramedic school right out of high school. Um, cause it was just the logical step less money, go to community college, do that. Well, I applied for U of H, got accepted, and then faced the hard fact that I couldn't qualify for a lot of financial aid. Um, and my mom, you know, bless her heart, she was she was all in. She would tell me, you know, Miko, if you want, if you want to go to college, you know, I'll pick up another job. We'll see how we can make it work. We'll try to take out loans. Um, and I didn't want that. And so I ended up taking an athletic running scholarship to a junior college so that I could go to school and not have to pay and not have to stress out my mom with that. And I ran into another situation similar to Juan Carlos where I didn't know about El Paso and the, the checkpoints that they have after. Oh, them. my gosh. <laughs> well, we went on a track meet to El Paso and I was one of two undocumented students uh, on that bus. Um, and I mean, the bus is, you know, stickered up with the college, uh, the college signs on there and everything. And so I didn't know about it. But once we got into El Paso, my friend was like, hey, I think I think there's a checkpoint on the way back. And I was like, I, I don't think so. I mean, we're not across the border. But sure enough, um, we came back and the guy at the checkpoint saw the bus, peeked his head in and he asked our coach, he's like, where are you guys going? You know, you guys coming from an athletic event. And he was like, yeah, you know, we're just headed back to school. He's like, well, you guys are good to go unless there's anything you want to tell me. And he's like, well, actually, I have I have two un- uh, undocumented students. Wait a minute. And- Wait a minute. Said that? <laughs> our coach. I mean, does he not he like was- you or what? I mean, no, what? no, no. He meant well. He was just he, he trying to he be honest understand. with everything. Yeah, he was trying to be honest. He didn't understand the situation. He didn't. Okay, understand. that coach wasn't Latino, was he? No, he was white. <laughs> <laughs> be honest with the cops. <laughs> okay. No. So 
Um, so there I am, a 19-year-old uh, detain. You know, they have a detainment um, little cell. Oh, so they pulled there. you off the bus. Yeah, they took they took me and my friend um, off the bus while the rest of our team uh, kind of hung out. And uh, they actually ended up leaving to go um, to go get a hotel for the night because they, they weren't sure how long we were going to be there. But fortunate for me and my my running mate, um, my mom had already we had already submitted my application for DACA, and so had my friend. And so, just the submission of the application, we faxed it over. That was enough for them to be like, "Okay, well, you know, you've applied for this." Uh, you're not 100% undocumented. Um, and so they saw that we were part of the team. They saw that we were just scared to death, right. you know? And so um, later that night, about five, six hours later, you know, we were on our way back to, to college, just mentally exhausted, scared to death, you know, because at that point I'm wow. like, am I, am I, you know, am I getting deported in my running shorts and my, you know, <laughs> like, you know, what is this? In your college jersey, yeah. In my college jersey, you know, and so I, I run into some situations like that, you know, and and the only thing the only thing that let me get paramedic certificate was the fact that you know when uh, I got approved for DACA, I was able to apply for my driver's license, and I was able to then you know pursue pursue my dream of being an EMT paramedic. So, well, that's but great. yeah, man, we struggle, and and like I said, I don't think my situation is unique. I think a lot of us share crazy stories like that man the fact that you were on an athletic scholarship and you were you were track runners i mean i would have said Mika, catch me vamos let's go i'm saying you know i've had this planned out in my head for a long time if i, I, I it's hard for them to run in that bulletproof vest and the gun and everything i mean it just outruns the saying, son of a gun man no i already had plan b if i went back back to mexico i already had a plan on you know, what shoes I was going to wear and how I was going to get there and what pace I was going to go at. Cause I mean, I can run. <laughs> you're going to go cross country, man. You're going to change, you're going to change, uh, uh, not change sports, change categories, go cross country. Yeah. 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 I was a long distance runner in high school. So I, oh, okay. I got the so you're up to it. All right. All right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you can't run across the water. I mean, it's that Texas. Okay. Uh, I love time, too. Hey, interesting stories, guys. Thank you for, for opening up and sharing that with us. But Juan Carlos, give us the status of where DACA is now. I know that there's a window coming up. I think things are happening with the Supreme Court. Um, give us a little uh, briefing on that, will you? Absolutely, JR. Like Alberto and Jesus' story show, we're in a vulnerable position, and we're only two steps away from deportation because DACA was never meant to be a permanent program. Like you said, it's an executive order that President Obama created. Any president can take it away at any time. And in addition to that, you have to apply for DACA or reapply every two years, which means that you always face the risk of possibly having your DACA run out of time and not or be the renewed. Re, or the renewal application being denied. Exactly. Or the renewal application being denied, which has happened to a couple of folks. Now, one Carlos, before we get into it a little further... You said that it was an executive order and any president can take it away. Now, under President Trump administration, he actually tried to take it away, right? And then it got, now it's tied up in the courts. He did. President Trump tried to take it away and basically announced it out of nowhere in September, I think it was 5th of 2017, and gave 
DACA recipients about three months. He gave us three months to figure out what to do with DACA, and he gave Congress a mandate to pass some kind of law if we, we didn't want to get deported. So what ended up happening was that the, the state of Texas, uh, right after President Obama announced DACA, decided to sue the administration for executive overreach. And the case actually did go to the Supreme Court. On the first time, the Supreme Court actually decided not to take up the DACA case. And then the case came up again after the Trump administration in 2020. And the Supreme Court actually said that President Trump had maliciously tried to end the program without any valid reasoning, which meant that Trump couldn't end the program right then, but he could try to end it once more by having a different argument. So this time, the DACA program for the third time is going to the Supreme Court with the argument that it is unconstitutional and that no president can just create immigration law out of thin air. And that case is being heard in the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans on July 6th. We already had a previous federal court say that DACA probably is unconstitutional and actually insisted that no new DACA applications can be accepted until some other court makes a decision about it. So what will probably happen is that the Fifth Circuit Court will say that the program is illegal and it will go to the Supreme Court of the United States sometime by the end of this year or next year. And the odds, JR, are not looking in favor. Yeah, I mean, come on, come on. It's a pretty conservative, it's a, the justice, I mean, the Supreme Court is pretty conservative right now. We just saw what they did with, uh, you know, the whole abortion issue. And I know that's coming before them. There's a lot of decisions that are going to be made. So with with a conservative uh, court like that, Juan Carlos, and as you, by your own in the middle of what you just said, that chances are it doesn't look very favorable for DACA, then what? what? What is there any recourse or are all of you having to go get deported? There are very few options. If the Supreme Court says that DACA is unconstitutional, basically DACA as it exists now will cease to exist and we will probably be given two to three months to figure out what to do with our lives. And Congress will be put in a situation in which they face the job losses of 600,000 DACA recipients, which is not a good thing for our economy or communities. So we will have to force and pressure Congress to pass okay. some sort of permanent legislation. We're saying 600,000 DACA recipients. So those are those are not all the dreamers, but just the DACA recipients that are actually in the system that have to renew every twenty, every two years that the government knows who you are, where you live, where you work, your blood type, how many, what you had for breakfast. They know everything about you. And so bottom they have line, all you, of our data, where we live. Yeah, you're easy to find, living, right? Where we work, exactly. They know Jesus, everything. I mean, I don't care how fast you run. They'll find you, man. I'm so, oh, I always tell people, you know, there's, there's very few things that you can avoid and one of them is immigration and they, they'll find you they know how much you make you, you know they know how much you spend uh, they know everything they so. know where you spend it that's right yeah okay so gosh so the situation so like i said if in fact and it's looking what you're telling me is it looking pretty bleak that that the supreme court will actually uphold daca so if they if they shoot it down and say it's unconstitutional then it's up to Congress at the time to pass some pass some new laws? It, Congress is the only branch that can pass immigration laws. So it's it's Congress or nothing, Congress or deportation. 
Okay. Now let me ask you this one, Carlos. I know that, and unfortunately, it's becoming a political issue, and it just makes no sense to deport over 600,000 people who have been pretty much raised in this country since childhood that are contributing to the economy, contributing to the well, the welfare and the well-being of this country, such as you three on this on this podcast. But I mean, we have a labor shortage as it is. It doesn't make any sense to deport people that are that are here working and contributing to to society. But also, how many Americans actually are in favor of giving DACA recipients some sort of pathway or allowing them to actually stay? DACA and Dreamers are one of the most popular issues among the American public. Seventy five percent of American voters support permanent protections for DACA recipients. 75%. 75% of all U.S. voters. Okay, so this isn't just 75% of Democrats or Republicans. It's 75% of all voters. Exactly, and that's 86% of Democrats and over 60% of Republicans also support permanent protections for DREAMers. Now, the our, our, our representatives in Congress are supposed to represent the people and, and their wishes, right? But So right now, the American people wish that DACA recipients being able to stay, but yet Congress is having some heartache with that. Congress has been playing football with Dreamers for as long as I can remember. So after DACA was ended in 2017, there was an effort to pass some sort of immigration deal that involved a path to citizenship for Dreamers and $25 billion for border security. It got actually nine Republican votes, which is the most number of Republicans that any immigration deal has ever gotten. But unfortunately, that deal fell apart because President Trump at the last moment decided that he was not going to support uh, the deal that would have given $25 billion for his border wall. So since then, Congress has tried to pass several dream acts, if you will, in the House side. And they, they have passed twice, both in 2019 and 2021. So we've come close, JR. I think we just need both chambers to finally pass it. Okay, now if it passes through the House, does it need to be ratified, you know, by the Senate as well, or is it, or just with the House vote do it? It needs both chambers. It both chambers? needs okay. the House and the Senate. And unfortunately, the Senate always backs, rollers, stops, prevents any immigration legislation from passing. And looking at the political climate and what's going on, I'm going to assume that you want this to happen before a new Congress or, or a new Senate is after the, after the, the, well, not the midterm elections. I mean, cause there's going to be, they, that could shift the balance of what happens in the Senate and, and, and Congress. We do think of it this way. We have until January of 2023, we have about five to 10 Republican senators who are retiring, including some of the most conservative, like Blunt and Toomey and Burr, uh, all very conservative senators, but who actually do support Dreamers. And we know that the new Speaker of the House will most likely be Kevin McCarthy of California. And he is on the record saying that he will pass, quote unquote, no amnesty for any immigrants, including Dreamers. So that's very worrying news, because if there's no movement between now and January, we may be in the wilderness for two to three years again before we pass any immigration legislation. Now, first of all, I don't see it as amnesty. That's a whole other podcast. I mean, this is this is not amnesty. I mean, well, to me, it's just doing what's humane and what's right. 
unfortunately, the political climate as it is, it's it's kind of muddy in the waters. You got red, you got blue, you got uh, fake news and information. I mean, there's a lot of folks who are just, how should I say this, are not really excited about the changing of America. And the complexion of America is changing. I mean, here in Texas alone. You know, Texas has been a minority, a minority majority state in, since 2004. A lot of people don't realize that. According to the Census Bureau, the last census, the 2020 census, by their own admittal, they undercounted the, the Hispanic population by over by close to 5%. They also say by 2020, by 2022, which is this year, that, that, that Hispanics, that Latinos will outnumber non-Hispanic whites. So, I mean, it is a minority, minority majority state, and Latinos are the majority group in this country, and it's continuing to grow. You can stop immigration all you want. You can close down the borders, but because of the numbers and because of we're younger and we're childbearing, there's going to be more and more Latinos, and they are not only are they increasing in population due to birth, not immigration, but because of an aging population, whites in this country are actually having fewer children where Latinos are having just as many as we always had. And that's what's kind of adding to that. So as it is, the whole country, or like I say, the complexion of the country is changing. And there's some people who just can't accept that and are saying anything and doing everything they can to prevent that. Even something like, you know, deporting good folks such as yourselves that have been here for their, see, their entire lives and are contributing to society. Juan Carlos, what do you say to those who are going, well, you know, all these undocumented folks, they're just a burden to our economy. I mean, they're costing us money. What's Actually, the opposite is true. We're not costing the U.S. money. We're giving the U.S. money. If you look at how many taxes DREAMers pay to the U.S., we're talking about just from the state of Texas alone, $963 million in state, local, and federal I'm taxes. I'm sorry, will you repeat that number again? $963 million in taxes across the board. Wow. That is money for our roads and bridges, our libraries, our public schools. That's money that's going directly into our communities from the pockets of dreamers. Add to that the economic output that we produce for the state. That's $6 billion in GDP annually for the state of Texas. All of the cars we buy, all of the homes we buy, the investments, the consumption of goods, all of that, if we were deported, would it would disappear. And we need to prevent that from happening. And that false notion of we are we take away from the U.S. we take handouts that is absolutely false. And you got uh, people like Alberto over there. I mean, he has a business. He employs people. He has a job. He pays not only his personal taxes, he pays business taxes, and is a you know contributor to our economy and society, providing a service. I mean, Juan Carlos. I, I mean, uh, Alberto, you didn't take a job from anybody. I mean, you created your own job. Yeah, no, and that's why I see that false narrative. I'm like, I'm like, I'm literally creating jobs for people. I'm paying uh, state, local taxes, federal taxes. I mean, we're supporting the economy. Like, I'm paying for people to go to school. That I mean, they're citizens, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think yeah, it's just a false narrative that I think they try to use against us. But in reality. So, like, I would say 85% of the dreamers that I know are either provide like, they're professionals, they're creating businesses. I mean, so far, the people that I've, and, and we don't even have the option to be, not not be great, because then what happens if we're not great? Then they take 
that DACA away from us. We, we're not even allowed to commit a crime. Not, none of those things because we're on such a thin line that we have to be great. All of everybody that has DACA has to be great. That's the only expectation that they have for us, you know? Right. Jesus, I mean, from, from your perspective, what would, what do you say to those that make the argument that, man, with all these undocumented workers, they're taking our jobs. They're, they're taking American jobs. Jesus, did you take, did you take an American, did you take some Americans job away from them? No, JR. I actually took a job that not a lot of people want to do. Um, people like myself are in jobs and positions that nobody else is available to take. We have a healthcare worker shortage, uh, as we've seen through the COVID-19 pandemic. We need healthcare workers. We need nurses. We need doctors. We need paramedics. And the people that are stepping up to take those jobs are uh, DACA recipients. You know, there's DACA recipients that are doctors out there. There's DACA recipients that are firefighters, EMTs, paramedics. Um, so we're actually just filling in the blanks that other people, citizens aren't willing to take or don't take. We're filling shortages in places that need staff, that need workers, that need people that are dedicated to this country and their communities. And that's all I see. Um, people can see whatever they want to see. But the truth is, when you actually go down and, and, and see what undocumented folks are doing, um, it's being part of their community, giving back and taking tough jobs. Wow. Well, you're definitely on the front lines, you're essential workers, and through whether it be hurricanes or COVID, you're out there literally saving lives. Thank you. Thank you for that. One yeah. Godless, <clears throat> as we look at this, and I'm watching the time right now, but I, I want to continue this just a little bit longer. What can people do? What can people do as individuals to maybe sway or, or, or talk? Can they write letters? Who can they call? What What can be done to see what we can do to to keep DACA in place or to, to create a yeah. path of to a citizenship. Yeah, absolutely. So the hands, the dreamers and us, we are in the hands of U.S. voters and in the hands of our legislators and only Congress can fix our situation. So we need to contact our senators, especially our two senators from Texas, John Cornyn, and Ted Cruz, and ask our senators to please vote in favor of permanent protections for DREAMers. And I think the folks will find that Senator Cornyn is very supportive, but we need Senator Cornyn at the table in negotiating an immigration deal. Right now, he's negotiating an immigration deal with Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois and Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina. This is a great opportunity in this atmosphere that we're in because there are things happening at the border there are things that Republicans want. There are things that Democrats want. Why not come together and create a compromise knowing that if we don't address this issue before January of next year, we will be in the wilderness for two to three years and the Supreme Court's going to call DACA unconstitutional anyway. So this is a good time to have folks call their senators of Congress, and I'm happy to share that number so that people can call them. Well, definitely on the uh, podcast notes, we'll do we'll give that number and we'll give some additional information. And Juan Godless, with your permission, maybe a, a contact or a link to your email address so if people have questions or want to find out more of, of what can happen. Now, when we're talking about DACA, we're talking, would you say, Juan Carlos, 600, how many, how many, how many DACA 660,000 DACA recipients. Okay. And how many in the state of Texas? 104,000 DACA recipients in the state of Texas. Okay. 
Juan Carlos or, or anybody, what would your response be to a lot of folks? And I hear it all the time says, well, they came here illegally. They should have just got in line like everybody else and did it right. Juan Carlos, how long is that line? It's a very long line, JR. If you're just trying to petition for. Imaginary too. Yeah, exactly. It's imaginary. If you're just trying to petition for a deal or tia or grandpa or someone, the average wait time for someone is 11 to 20 years. I'm, I'm in line right now and uh, I'm not going to hear back for 20 years minimum. And if you're from India or China and if you're trying to get an employment-based visa, it's a hundred years. So it, it, the immigration system is completely complicated and messed up. And that's why we need to fix it through legislation because uh, there is no line. It's imaginary. Like Jesus said, it's an imaginary line. Sometimes it's all boils down to whoever is looking at your paperwork at the time, right? That's right. And it's kind of, even though, okay, you're saying up to 20 years on a line coming from, from uh, Mexico or, or, or Latin American countries, yet for the price of $500,000, if you want to invest in a business in the U.S., you can go ahead and get a visa for you and every member of your family. So, I mean, it's okay to buy your way into the U.S., but if you're a hardworking individual who wants to try to earn a better way of life, I mean, wait in line for 20 years unless you have $500,000 to go ahead and invest in a business. It's almost I think a little, it's more. Is it, is it more? I know one time yeah, it was 500,000. It's like 900,000. Inflation. Inflation. Yeah. How much is it? But I was like, oh, yeah, that's a lot. They want so, the cash up front, too. So if you have plata, if you have money, you can go ahead and come in. But if you don't, you know, wait in line for 20 years. Yeah. Um, just some Better of the, get married. <laughs> get married. Yeah. Some of the, well, anyway, I, I won't get into that, but. <laughs> But let me let me end on this note, one Godless. When it comes to DACA recipients, uh, and there's a lot of folks that believe that that people here undocumented are just a burden on our society. Uh, we've talked about that number wise, actually making money off of off of immigrants. And these are, you're just talking about the DACA. I mean, how many folks out there? I mean, come on, the U.S. government knows that. Well, back up. When like 375 people share the same social security card, okay, and that FICA and those government taxes uh, get taken out, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to go down and see, see these guys at H&R Block trying to get a refund. That is money that is being paid when they get that, that social security card from the Pulga, you know, from the flea market and everybody's using the same one. The government knows that. I mean, they're making money, making lots of money off of, off of DACA, off the of undocumented after, after, you know, folks that are here. Um, and and it just it's just a shame to try to put the blame of they're a burden they're costing us money they're 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 here illegally they shouldn't be here but but the same respect out of the DACA recipients Juan Carlos how many of them are actually you gave me a figure before the podcast the percentage of folks that are actually working or in school right now right now ninety six percent of all Texas Dreamers are working in school or serving in the military they're not just hanging out. They're not just hanging around or hanging out at, don't, at, at Home Depot looking for a job, huh? And They're, whether you're undocumented or not, you know, a lot of us can get I-10 numbers because the IRS still has to get there. So a lot of us, even though we don't have socials, we can have I-10 numbers and still pay taxes even though we're undocumented. And a lot so. of people do? Yep. 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 Yeah. Well, before we wrap it up, let's start with Alberto. Alberto, any closing comments or remarks or, or messages you'd like to, to do or maybe a shout out to somebody out there? 
Uh, shout out to my family. Shout out to my mom, uh, Claudia, my sister, Maria, and my little brother, Diego. And then as far as uh, DACA, I just wish people will go out and vote locally, you know, federally, everything, just because they don't, a lot of people don't realize how much voting matters. So I just encourage people to go out there and vote um, if you really want to get involved. Get, it, it, and if you're not, register to vote, right? Get your, get your yeah, register butts to vote. down there it and register to vote. Yeah. Yep. That's and, my and, closing. I mean, I, and, yeah, and Alberto, thank you for that. And in my opinion, it doesn't matter how you vote. Get registered. Get involved with the process, whether you're a, a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, a Vegetarian. It doesn't matter. Just get <laughs> yeah, out there yeah. and get, get involved in the process. Civic engagement. It matters. Because it matters. Why, why are we letting other people <laughs> determine our own destiny? Why are we letting other people determine what our lives are going to look like? As Latinos, as a community, as the largest population in the state of Texas, we should go out there and vote and help determine our own destiny, our own futures, and letting somebody else do it for us. Well, one more thing. there's a lot of shit. Or sorry, I was going to say, because you even look no, at ahead, the U.S. And, and, and where it's heading, right? I mean, you can clearly see that there's uh, a decline in just education overall, like uh, finances, just entrepreneurship all around the world, right? There's different countries taking over different segments. So as an American, it should worry you that, you know, the best talents are no longer in the United States. And that's because you're putting all these all these uh, obstacles in front of all these great people that are trying to come to your country. They're trying to make it better. They're trying to achieve the American dream. You're the American people are the ones that are, you know, putting those obstacles in front of those people. So if you really want to continue being the greatest country in, in, in the planet, then you have to have the best talents in the world. And that's what America has been great at throughout this whole time is accepting great talent. And so why start, why stop that now? You know, like if it's been, if this system has worked for you for so long, yeah. why try to break the system? I mean, all through American history, all through American history, we've taken the best from other countries and making them exactly. our own. Exactly. So yep. what's the diff? What's the difference now? Okay. Uh, Jesus, any, any closing comments or shout outs to anybody? Uh, I'll give some shout outs to uh, the footworkers. Those, those folks that are out there on the ground doing the work you know, talking to their uh, elected officials, uh, organizations like ABIC, uh, FIEL, 4.US, um, United We Dream. Those folks that are in the nonprofit uh, organizations, they're working every single day trying to get um, knowledge to the people, uh, trying to get people together, rally people together so that we can stand united and stand together and, and lift our voices up. Also, shout out to... to to the media, shout out to you for using your platform to share our stories and to bring our stories to the, you know, to the table of ordinary people. I think that's one of the most important tools that we have is our voices. And, and so shout out to everybody that's out there speaking their heart out and, and standing up for what's right. Okay, thank you. Juan Carlos, I'll let you bring us home. What do you got? Any any closing comments, shout outs, thank yous? Yeah, JR. Yes. So actually, just over two years ago, I went back to the border for the first time in 20 years. I was driving west on Interstate 10, looking down at the fence dividing Mexico for the U.S. and, and just being mind boggled by, wow, the, I'm only separated from Mexico by a, a few dozen feet and thinking, if I cross that line, I'm never going to return to my home over here in Texas. So that's a situation. It's a feeling that I don't want anyone uh, else to feel. 
Uh, it's a feeling uh, of wanting to belong, of wanting there to be permanence, to be some certainty, because DACA has been thrown back and forth as a political football between the parties, litigating the courts. DACA is going to end. DACA is not going to end. So DACA, it can't be forever. We can't be living on like this for the rest of our lives, just two years at a time. We have to have certainty that we're going to stay in the country that we know to be home with the people we love, with the community we've come to know and to serve. And that, that's a hope. And I know that people sometimes feel that politics and government can can be useless around issues like this. But the truth is, like Jesus and Alberto alluded to, the power is within ourselves to do something and to not only car senators, but vote and to share our stories with the world. Juan Carlos, thank you. Uh, one more time, what can people do to help make a difference? Absolutely. Call Senators Cornyn and Cruz, vote for permanent legislation for DREAMers. Go vote this November, and I think it's November the 4th. And uh, also uh, contact us if you have any stories to share with your senators uh, and if you want to get involved with ABIC. Absolutely. And we have how many DREAMers again? 600 what? 660,000 plus DREAMers across the country. 660,000 plus DREAMers across the country who are in jeopardy of the Supreme Court calling it unconstitutional. And if Congress doesn't act, puts all these men and women in a huge plight of whether they're going to be able to stay or they're going to get deported. Even though 70, what, 73, 75% of the American people want a pathway for citizenship for you, want you to stay, see the value of having dreamers here. It seems like our Congress and our elected officials look at it differently. Are they so busy playing politics with each other and trading back and forth? I'll give you this if you give me that. I mean, God. When is it going to stop? When are they going to make a decision what's best for America and not try to make decisions best on their pol their personal politics and how they can get one upsmanship on each other? It just uh, makes no sense. America first, yes, but in a common sense way. And like I said, we're not here to bash any side, whether you're Democrat, whether it be Republican, either party. Everybody has issues. The thing that's not happened is people aren't working together for the betterment in this country, in my opinion. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. This has been the uh, Latino Business Report. I've been your host, Jair Gonzalez. Juan Carlos, Jesus, Alberto, thank you so much for being on, uh, being on the podcast. Uh, guys, if you like what you hear, go ahead and like us. Make your comments on the podcast. We look forward to uh, uh, seeing what you have to say, and we will see you next time.